You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual I opened last week's show with some comments on our new first lady, Melania Trump, rattling off the long list of the things she's done that really pissed me off. The birtherism, the plagiarism, the punitive lawsuits, the hypocritical and sneering disregard for immigrants who aren't married to billionaires, the stated desire to profit off her position as first lady. That one really made my head explode. And you might think I would leave it alone. I would talk about something else this week, maybe something sex-related, particularly after the wave of abuse I came in for online after making those measured, calm comments about the First Lady last week. Don't pity me. Pity the poor tech-savvy at-risk youth because they're the ones who listen to all the calls as they come in. And man, there are lots of angry people out there. None of them regular listeners, but somehow they got our number. But I'm returning to Melania Trump at the top of this week's show because there's something I left out, something big, something I should have mentioned in my list, along with the plagiarism, the birtherism, the punitive lawsuits, and that is the anti-Semitism. Way back in May of last year, back when a Trump presidency still seemed inconceivable, and I will always treasure those memories of those days, the inconceivable days, ah, Anyway, back in those days, the writer Julia Yofi wrote a piece, a profile of Melania Trump that appeared in GQ. And it was, you know, I read it. It was generally pretty positive for the most part. But it did do what people who profile potential first ladies and presidents do. It dug into Melania's family history, Melania's family history back in Slovenia. And Yofi wrote about a half-brother Melania's family has but doesn't acknowledge and Melania was really pissed, really pissed about the article, said so publicly, took to Facebook to scream and yell because it turns out that Donald Trump isn't the only thin-skinned Trump and thin skin is apparently a sexually transmitted infection that we didn't know about. Anyway, Melania's fans, as she calls them, went after Yafi. Yafi is Jewish and Melania's fans subjected Yafi to just an appalling wave of anti-Semitic abuse. People tweeted images at her with her face photoshopped onto those of concentration camp victims. People called her phone numbers and played recordings of Hitler's speeches. She was sent crude drawings on Twitter of anti-Semitic characters of Jews being shot in the head and being told that she was next and countless death threats. When Melania Trump was asked about what was being done to Yaffe, She said in an interview, I don't control my fans. I don't agree with what they're doing. There are people out there who maybe went too far. But whose fault was that? Ultimately, whose fault? According to Melania, it was Yaffe's fault. Quote, she provoked them, said Melania Trump. Donald Trump, for his part, was asked on CNN about the attacks on Yaffe. And he was asked by Wolf Blitzer if he wouldn't tell his fans to knock it off. He refused. All right, let's talk a little bit about another story uh, that's come out. And, and I know you, you hated this article in GQ about your wife, Melania. Julia Yaffe wrote it. Uh, she posted Melania was dishonest and accurate. Uh, a very tough piece. But since then, some of your supporters have viciously attacked this woman, Julia Yaffe, with anti-Semitic attacks, death threats. These people get so angry. What's your message to these people when something like that happens? I haven't read the article, but I heard it was a very inaccurate article. 
And I heard it was a nasty article to them. But your message to these fans is, I don't have a message to the fans. I don't have a message to the fans. Actually, Donald and Melania both sent messages to the fans. They sent out a signal, a signal that this kind of abuse, this kind of anti-Semitic abuse is okay, that it is permissible. Oh, maybe they'll condemn it in the mildest possible terms in Mrs. Trump's case or not at all in Donald's case. But then they will quickly pivot to making excuses for bigots, like the bigots who've been blowing up our phone lines here at the Savage Lovecast all week. You're nothing but a punk-ass motherfucker, and if I saw you in person, I'd put your teeth down the end of your asshole, you queer cocksucker. First lady's got more class than you'll ever have, you little cock bite. You're the ugliest motherfucking guy I've ever seen in my life. You're probably ignorant and stupid and have no clue as to how to be polite and cordial and handle people properly. People like you shouldn't, shouldn't have the right to open their big mouths. Do me a favor. Go play in the freeway. Go jump off a bridge. Go blow your brains out. You're a pickle-nosed scumbag. I think you're ugly on the outside, but <gasps> would that be bullying? I think you're a bully. Dan Savage. I bet your wife's a skank. Okay, two things quickly. Um, first, I'll take that bet. I'll bet you my wife is not a skank. And I'll win that bet because you know what? I don't have a wife. Ha, huh? psych. Always Google the person you're about to send idiotic, threatening messages to just so you don't fuck up. All right, and pivoting quickly to the insane argument that I am somehow bullying Melania Trump by saying that I don't like her, that I hate her even. Yeah, no. Bullying involves powerful people or a powerful person picking on a weaker person. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, the first lady of the United States and the president of the United States, these billionaires with access to nuclear codes and drone technology, they are more powerful than a sex advice columnist with a podcast and a filthy mouth. But you know what I'm willing to concede? Hate maybe was too strong a word. I don't know her, but I sure do dislike what she stands for. I strongly dislike some of the things she stood behind. Things like, again, birtherism. Things like her vile husband. And while maybe I don't hate her, I do hate the way she made excuses for and sent go-for-it signals to anti-Semites. And I do hate the not insignificant role Melania Trump played in disinhibiting the bigots out there because you can draw a straight line from Melania Trump's she provoked them comment, which is really just that you had it coming to the waves of bomb threats and cemetery desecrations we've seen over the last year, including this week one in Seattle, a block from my office. The inaction, not inactions, the provocations of Melania and Donald Trump, their excuses. I hate that. That is hateful. And it is ongoing. The winking at anti-Semitism, the permission that the Trumps, the both of them, gave to the worst mouth-breathing, knuckle-dragging bigots rattling around in our country, I hate that. As I was discussing with my skank wife this morning, I'm very offended by that. And then she kissed me on my pickle nose and sent me to work. All right. 
And coming up on the show today, we've got Amanda Marcotte here to talk about Beauty and the Beast, which opens this week. And in the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, a long and I think very interesting conversation with Michael Hobbs, author of the long piece on gay loneliness that appeared at Huffington Post that everyone's been talking about on social media all week long. Coming up. I'll jump right into it. I was raised in King County, and I have a certain set of beliefs and a certain liberalism about me that I stand up for. And since now I live in a more conservative area, there's been a lot of pushback on those beliefs. Now, I'm not going to back down on what I believe in, and I'm going to stand up for LGBT rights. But it's getting harder. It's getting harder and harder every day. Uh, I've had so much pushback that I don't know what to do. I mean, I'm at work in the bathroom. I don't know if I can keep going. You know, it's disheartening when you have no allies in your area that will stand up with you. And I just want to hear from someone that someone stands with me on this. It's easy to point to all the numbers of people that are standing against Donald Trump and standing for liberalism. But sometimes you need someone to say they stand with you person to person or over the phone or anything like that. I mean, I've gotten pushback on social media about standing up for feminism. I mean, I'm wondering if anybody else you know of has had similar problems moving to more conservative areas from places like Seattle, from places like the Bay Area. And I could use some heartening here. I'm your ally all day. I need you to be my ally. You say you left King County, which is where I am right now. King County is the county that Seattle, Washington is in for some place less liberal, tolerant, progressive, rational, and you're suffering for it. And what I want to tell you to do beyond maybe finding a different job somewhere if the place where you work now is so overrun with assholes that you are locked in a bathroom at work, as upset as you currently are, maybe you should get that resume out there. Maybe you should be looking for work elsewhere. And unemployment is at historic lows. Thanks, Obama. And there are jobs available to you. So you're not nailed to the floor there at that particular workplace. And it can help you if you're in a bad situation. It can help you endure it for as long as you are trapped in that bad situation. If you're actively making a plan and executing a plan to get yourself the fuck out of there. So that was my practical advice. Here's my impractical advice. Take heart and look around and get out there and find the people who agree with you, who probably are, are they're there, but they may be not as willing as you are right now to stick your neck out. Maybe they've been bullied and shamed and harassed into keeping their own counsel and keeping their mouths shut. But we know that there are liberals and progressives in the shittiest, reddest states in the country because we can see the vote totals. We can see the returns. Lincoln County is the reddest county in Washington state. King County, the bluest. Lincoln, the reddest. Donald Trump won 72% of the vote in Lincoln County a county where people are overwhelmingly dependent upon Obamacare for their health insurance went overwhelmingly for Donald J. Trump, 72%. But 22% of the people in Lincoln County voted for Hillary Clinton and 4% voted for Gary Johnson 
and 1% voted for Jill fucking Stein. So you are not alone. There are liberals and progressives, including some really stupid ones in Lincoln County. Smart ones who backed Clinton and less smart ones who backed Johnson and really fucking stupid ones who backed Stein. They're out there in Lincoln County. And your job, one of the ways you can keep yourself sane, is to find a way to find them so that you have some allies besides all of the allies you just acquired, all the people who just listen to your call, who will be calling in to express their sympathy and support and commiserate because you're not the only one out there in the situation that you're in. You have people in your community wherever you are. And if you don't believe me, look up the precinct by precinct vote totals in your communities and you will find that you are not the only Clinton voter or Green Party voter in your area. And your mission then, if none of the rest of them are wearing ITMFA t-shirts, is to go out and find them. Maybe there is an indivisible group that meets in secret in your area. Maybe there is a democratic club in your area. Find your way in. Find your people. Find your allies. And don't for a minute tell yourself that because you're in a red state or you're in a county that went overwhelmingly for Donald J. Trump and has been represented in Congress by Republican knuckle-dragging shitbags who are supporting scrapping the Affordable Care Act, that you are utterly, utterly alone. You are not. You also are not nailed to the floor. And you can get your resume out there, and you can get a new job, and you can plan your escape. So, caller, our hearts go out to you. I'm sorry that you're trapped in a building with a bunch of shitty assholes. Thank you for speaking up for feminism. Thank you for speaking up for LGBT people. No one will blame you if you want to keep your own counsel for a little while for your mental health and go stealth and let them say whatever shitty things that they need to say or want to say or have to say without feeling compelled to challenge them in the moment until you have found a community in your shitty community, a better community within your shitty community. So you feel stronger and less vulnerable and less upset. And if you can't find those people or if finding those people and they're out there aren't enough for you to live in that community and feel safe and whole and valued, get the fuck out. Move the fuck away. Go somewhere sane. Escape from Lincoln County or wherever the hell you are right now. Hi, Dan. I'm a straight female living in New England, and I have a New York City fuck buddy. Last time we hooked up, I made a, a point to explain to him because he'd been seeing other people and so have I, and he just recently had a kidney infection that we should use condoms. Um, so we, I went to New York and we were hooking up and then we were, things were getting ready. And I was like, Oh, do you want to wear a condom? And he said, no, and just put it in. So it was at that point I decided, okay, you crossed the boundary. This isn't very fun anymore. And I don't really want to see him again. But my question is, should I tell him why? Do you think that we can learn from each other from talking about this? Or do you think that there'd be any benefit to bringing it up? That was a few weeks ago, but he still hits me up on social media and like texting and stuff. I don't really respond, but I just want to know, do I owe it to him or myself to really talk about it? You don't owe him anything. You might want to tell him, though, why you're not interested in seeing him ever again. Because what he did was super fucked up and it cost him any further access to you or your genitalia going forward. And perhaps in a future relationship, a future encounter, he, it'll come to him 
in the moment when he's being shitty that being shitty makes people want to not see you again. Being shitty gets your ass dumped. Being shitty gets women who might otherwise want to let you fuck them to stop returning your texts and calls and never wanting you to fuck them ever again. So yeah, you should tell him. He should know. I suspect that he may know. And a little pro tip, and not to blame the victim here because you are the victim of the way women are socialized. Women are raised to not tell men what they want uh, or what is allowed or what they will, where their boundaries are, what their limits are, but to defer to men, to ask men what they want when actually they're attempting in a bank shot way to tell men what they want. You say, you said to him, do you want to wear a condom? Question mark. And he stuck his dick in you and said, no, he doesn't want to wear a condom. Next time, and err on the side of this in the future always, all women should err, all of us as individuals, male or female, let's not gender this up too much, should err on the side of not asking someone what they want when we're trying to tell them what we require. In the moment, you required him to wear a condom because of his health issues for your own safety. But rather than saying, put a fucking condom on or your dick's not getting anywhere near the inside of me, you said, would you like to wear a condom? Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't give him the option of arguing with you or saying no or thinking it's up to him in that moment if indeed you phrased it that way. No. Would you like maybe to wear a condom? No. No, 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 no. You will now put a condom on your dick or you will put your dick the fuck away. You're not going to put your dick in me without a condom on it. Go get a condom. So in the future, caller, all of us, women, men, non-binaries, all of us, don't ask someone a question when you're trying to tell someone something. Don't make a statement in the form of a question. Women are socialized to approach men in that manner. Instead of saying what you want, asking him if maybe what you want is also what he wants. And then if what you want is what he wants too, then you don't have to have a confrontation because you're on the same page. You don't have to risk telling a man what you want you don't have to risk seeming like a castrating bitch or whatever the fuck it is that the culture tells you you are. If you tell a man X, you want X. Yeah, don't do that. Don't fall into that trap. Hey, nice dick there. You want to put a condom on that? Because if you're not putting a condom on that, you're going to have to put it the fuck away. That's how you do it. That's how you say it. Ladies, fewer question marks, more periods. Hey, Dan. Straight male in the Southeast. I guess I'm calling. I'm trying to figure out a situation. My morning has been... Awesome. I found out just today, see, a month ago, I kind of had my heart shattered by a young, beautiful blonde. And I found out today that my friend of 17 years fucked her after dealing her some weed before I left for a job. I work in the film industry and I'm about to manage my first show and I hired him to work it with me in March. And now I'm freaked out because he's going to ride down five hours to where we're shooting a little indie film and he's going to be staying with me for three weeks in a hotel and I've confronted him about it. He says he feels terrible, but I can't help but want to kill him. He was the only person who was there with me when me and this girl broke up and so he saw how it affected me. So I'm a little more pissed that he could do that afterwards. I really just want to know what the hell I should do. I can't fire him. He's locked in and I need the help. He's the only person I know who's available for work right now. So 
guess I'd just love to hear your thoughts. So did I get you in time? Have you killed your friend yet, or is your friend still alive? Uh, my friend's still alive. I've actually talked to him after a couple of days of not speaking. <laughs> and how'd that conversation go? After I thought a little bit, I just, uh, I told him he's a giant idiot, but that I wasn't going <laughs> to throw away almost 16 years of friendship over, basically. A, a mistake is dick made? Yeah, a mistake is dick made. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, you know, uh, on the one hand, I want to say you know, often in straight land, and I, I assume you're straight, not bi. Are you straight? Can I say that? I'm, I'm, I'm curious. <laughs> <That's about> the <laughs> <most>. <laughs> okay, you're you're mostly straight. Yeah, I'm straight mostly identified, straight, straight functioning, uh, but asterisks. Who knows? Um, yeah. And under the right circumstances, who knows? Uh, yeah. But in straight land, it's it's a much more taboo thing to sleep with the ex of a friend. Yeah. Um, and we don't have that luxury in, in gay land because there's so many fewer of us that if, mm-hmm. and you know, a lot of us also have a lot of sexual contacts and partners and relationships. So if, you know, anybody that a friend of yours had slept with was out of bounds, you wouldn't be able to sleep with anybody ever after a while. And you would have to move to a new city or continent every once in a while just so you could fuck somebody. So we don't have that luxury. So we don't have that taboo. <laughs> and so part of me, you know, he, you know, when I first heard your call, I was like, dude, come on gonna get over this shit but then part of me was like and get over it and it's not a problem in gay land so it's really hard for me to empathize but on the other hand this is a friendship of 17 years and he was with you when you got your heart shattered yeah by and i don't want to say by this woman because it's not something she did maliciously you know relationships go tits up every once in a while and you know if you were one of the protagonists in that drama you want to shift or assign blame but you know shit happens and things don't work out and that's part of the game and if you yeah. can't handle getting dumped and having your heart shattered every once in a while don't date be celibate because that's bundled with that shit but he was there for you he watched how destroyed you were in the moment and it just seems like if i was talking to your friend like okay so you want to fuck this woman you can eventually maybe not right this minute maybe not while well, your your friend of 16 17 years is still sobbing maybe now's not the time to stick your dick in his ex-girlfriend but that time may come and Mm -hmm. the mark of your friendship is that you held out for a little while not that you never did yeah i think that's i think that's what i kind of was more upset about (laughs) that he just yeah yeah, even even knowing that and this is me talking from gayland even knowing that you being angry and upset that your friend slept with your ex uh, might be slightly irrational and a little unfair and not something we would do in Gayland. Your friend had to know that this would be unwelcome and painful for you. Even yeah. if it was unfair. Because I don't think we have dibs forever on anyone we've ever touched with our penises. Mm-hmm. In gay or straight land. I think that's an un- an unrealistic expectation. And an irrational demand to to, to make upon your friends. Because sometimes you date somebody doesn't work out for you and they're they may be the right person, the you know the point six four or the point six eight that somebody that you know could round the fuck up to one, and they supposed to never date that person just because you dated them first and it didn't work out? No, no, of course not. You have to suck that up and be the grown up and be happy for them. But just like a casual one off, fuck your really close friend's <laughs> ex girlfriend in the wake of their traumatic for him breakup. Uh, kind of a dick move, literally yeah. a dick move, <laughs> in every sense. Yeah, that's pretty much what I told him. I told him he was an idiot. She's a piece of work, but he should have known better. <laughs> mm-hmm. And are you guys going to, 
I hate to use this phrase, especially on a show where I had uh, Amanda Marcotte on, but are you guys going to bro before ho this? Are you guys going to put it behind you? Well, I had to make a business decision as well because I hired him. So uh, I kept him. And so he's going to come work with me. uh, That's what I thought. You're going to have to suck this up. Yeah. So, and then, so that's why I had to have the conversation. He's best at what he does and what I hired him for. So I'm not going to give him up over a dumb decision that we make with our dicks. It just happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious what he does beyond uh, sell weed and fuck (laughs) his friends, ex-girlfriends, but I don't want you to tell us because we don't want to identify or out anybody. Exactly. (laughs) So I hope he's as good at uh, whatever the job is, whatever the gig is, as Mm -hmm. he is at seducing or fucking or being seduced by, we don't know what went down. Uh, his close friends' exes. I, I hope so too. I'm glad you called him. I'm glad you had the conversation. I think that I predict that this will be something that you guys in a few years will laugh about. It'll always be filed as a shitty thing you did, but you will come to have a sense of humor about it. And uh, and you should ask your gay friends. You're in the arts. I'm sure you know lots of gay people. <laughs> and ask your gay friends how they handle this when somebody that they broke up with or hooking up with hooks up with somebody else, a close friend that they know. And what you'll find is they tease each other about it, laugh about it. Even if there's some, even if there's a stone in the shoe, even if there's a little bit of pain there, you just have to have a sense of humor about it. That's what cauterizes those wounds. Yeah. I'm pretty sure we will get past it. Well, good luck and better luck on your next relationship. And don't introduce your next girlfriend to him ever. (laughs) All right. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for calling. (laughs) Sure thing, and good luck with the film. All right, thanks. Bye. Oh, you guys, the live-action remake of Beauty and the Beast opens this week, and I'm really excited about it. Emma Watson, Josh Gad, there's a gay character, or a character they're finally going to admit as a gay character in a Disney movie. What's not to love? I'm sure everyone just can't wait for this movie to open. I'm sure you can't wait. And now here to ruin it for us and everyone is a feminist. Amanda Marcotte, politics writer for Salon. Thanks for jumping on the phone. (laughs) Thanks for for having me. I I enjoy ruining movies for people. (laughs) You laughed. I made a joke about humorless feminists and you laughed. So you clearly disproved that bullshit that that feminists don't have a sense of humor. But you have a problem with Beauty and the Beast. Can you unpack it for us? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I want to preface that by saying, you know, it's a fun movie, the cartoon, uh, it has good songs, I understand why people like it, I'm not bagging down anyone for liking it, but, you know, it, it the movie, it, as if you take it as an allegory and as a feminist, or as a fairy tale, I think you should always take it as an allegory, is literally telling women, the ver- little girls, in fact, the very thing you really don't want to tell little girls, which is, the way to get a handsome prince who treats you right is to hang in patiently and put up with a beast bullshit <laughs> for for months, years maybe, you know, and and eventually you can change him through the power of your love. And you know, I I think that that's a problematic message on many levels and the number one way I think that's a problem is that that's exactly the narrative that women 
use and are sort of bullied into using to stay with men that are abusive. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult when you're in an abusive relationship to leave sometimes because you've been absorbing messages primarily through Beauty and the Beast, but others like it, that what a, a bad man needs is a good woman's love, and if you just hang in, he'll change. You know what my number one problem is with it? Is that so many young girls fall for it. Some days when we do this show, half the calls are women who need to be told, and I say it more crudely than than you do, or you just did, that their love isn't magic, that their pussy isn't chemotherapy, that it's not going to fix or cure the guy, and that they can leave, and that they should leave. And so it's not just that women get this message. So many women believe it and it really harms them in life and in their relationships. I can't count the number of times I've had to like call somebody back and grab them by the shoulders and shake them and say, leave him. Your love isn't magic. Your love isn't going to change him. It's not going to fix him. People need to be in good working order to be in a relationship. Being in a relationship isn't going to put you in good working order. So as much as I'm excited to see the movie, I, I, I read what you were saying about Beating the Beast and I was like, oh yeah, she's right. And I am very familiar with that dynamic because I hear it all the time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I can't say that I haven't lived it, and I I've definitely seen it a lot. And you know, that's a, I, I speak from personal experience here. You know, I was a little girl once, and I liked Beauty and the Beast, and I liked fairy tales. And it's only as an adult woman that I look back and I go, "Oh, that was really toxic." So, how do we enjoy the fairy tales without succumbing to the toxins? Is that possible? You know, that's a really tough question. I mean. I got an English degree in college, so I, I, I love the notion that as long as we are honest with ourselves and anal- analyze the political messages of movies and novels and all that, we can enjoy the art while not, not necessarily accepting the message. And I think that that's true for adults. I, I don't know that I believe that children are capable of that, though. I mean, though, I, I, you know, I'm not a parent, but I would suggest that parents at least try, you know, if you, if you let your kid watch Beauty and the Beast, maybe talk to them about why it's, you know, not a good idea to just let some man hold you in the home <laughs> <laughs> until you, you love him under the guise that it will change him. <laughs> Yeah, like let some guy lock you up and hold you captive and under duress and and coerce you into staying by threatening your family. And then the power of your love, your magic chemotherapy pussy will cure him. (laughs) Probably not how it's going to work out in the long run. No. So while we have you on the phone, can we toss a Savage Lovecast question at you? Yeah, yeah. Hi, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old a single white female, just got out of a four-year relationship uh, just a couple months ago. Um, I have a question uh, about online dating, um, Tinder and Bumble, I and a weird um, experience I had with it. Um, so I've been going on a lot of dates now that I'm single, you know, going out to dinner, going out to drinks, um, and then sleeping with a guy if I find him attractive. And it's been fun. I've had a few flings, um, things that have lasted you know, a couple weeks and then cut loose. Nothing um, dramatic, no big deal. But recently I had a thing with a guy um, and when we kind of got down to the um, defining the relationship where I say my usual thing of, you know, I just got out of a relationship, I'm busy and I'm not looking for anything more than casual sex, but if you want to continue having casual sex, that's fine. He kind of freaked out 
he had um, been really sexually explorative. Um, I'm pretty kinky myself, so I was excited to meet someone who shared in my kinkiness. Um, we had just had uh, anal, which was, you know, an intense experience. It always is. And he had kind of crossed uh, the boundary with that. He went a little too fast. I said, stop, and he didn't. Um, and was pretty rough. Uh, this is right after I said to him, you know, I didn't want to date him. I know I probably shouldn't have pulled him that right before we hooked up. But uh, he then intentionally, after sex, burned me with a cigarette and said, ha now you'll never be able to forget me. He told me that he hates women. He's kind of had this problem before where he starts to have a relationship uh, and then the woman doesn't want to take it further. I don't know why I stayed, but I guess I was just trying to calm him down a little bit. But he continued to tell me about his really just kind of uh, fucked up life a little bit, uh, everything that he's been going through. Um, I'm a really empathetic person by nature. I felt really bad for him. I kind of talked him through some stuff, listened to him for a while. Um, I try to leave it on good terms. Like, Hey, we can, you know, we can be friends. Um, but, uh, it's been a two days and the more I think about it, the more I just realize, like, wow, I'm not cool with how that went down. Uh, but I feel kind of terrible. I mean, he really put himself out there. He already has a lot of self hate and he obviously hates women and I don't want to be another woman. He just kind of says, is a bitch and is awful and women are terrible. So I don't know what to do. I don't know whether I should try and keep a friendly and supportive um, relationship um, or if I should just cut all ties. Um, I've only known this guy for about three weeks, so I I really don't want to be involved, um, but I just kind of feel bad for him and maybe responsible, not responsible, but like I should help. Oh, wow. Yeah. Just what we were talking about, huh? Yeah, kind of. And she is really mistaking, you know, that's not empathy that she's feeling. That's Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can just, you can really, really hear it there. And I, I almost don't want to blame women because that's how they get you. That's like, for instance, a, a story like Beauty and the Beast, but other narratives like it, they kind of play on your desire to be a good person, to be a loving person, to be a kind and generous and understanding person. But then you see scumbags like that just take advantage of it. Oh, my God. And, and burns her with a cigarette, violently fucks her in the ass, tells her he hates women, and she's calling me, some other man, right, to get permission to not talk to him anymore. I'm... I'm a little wrecked by this call. It makes me, you know, I like her and, and, you know, I like people who are loving and empathetic and kind and compassionate. I hope to be that kind of person myself one day when I grow up, not there yet on the way though. And, and yet is she just so duped by the culture? Has she been so brainwashed by the culture that she doesn't feel that as an autonomous individual, she has the right to cut this person out of her life after he violated her in this way after he burned her with a cigarette that's some cia torture shit yeah i mean when we say that women are socialized to be ever 
generous and understanding to men. I think this is a really good example. And, and you know, it, it, it's training you, you for your own health and safety. You have to, to shuck off. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter, you know, she's so, she has this ability to tap into what he might be feeling. He's obviously struggling with self-hate. He obviously has these issues with women. I don't want to make his issues with women worse by running from him like I should, like any rational person would, because, because, you, because she thinks it's her responsibility to repair him. Yeah, it's such a strange thing. And I mean, if you really step back and think about it, this notion that every woman is kind of an unpaid nursemaid for any man that just asks. <laughs> and yet, you, you, I mean, it's undeniable the evidence is there that a lot of people have absorbed that message, possibly through Disney movies. And, <laughs> and you know, it, it, you see a woman accepting even this level of just overt abuse. And, and it, it saddens me because I also, you know, you go, if you have a dark, dark soul like I do and you spend too much time on Reddit, you will actually see men kind of training each other and telling each other to take advantage of women this way, you know, to, to, to press their boundaries and see how much they'll put up with and still stick around. Oh, that's it. Why do women even talk to men? There's that famous Louis C.K. stand-up routine about what, where he wonders why women even will look at men, much less go on a date with men, considering all the psychological violence, physical violence that you know women are likely to be murdered by a male intimate partner than by anybody else. <laughs> why do women look at men? Says well, the dude who sleeps with guys himself. Why? 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 For for the same reason you do, Dan. <laughs> I mean. You know, that like because the, we love our testosterone soaked dick monsters. <laughs> the patriarchy, patriarchy as it was, uh, exploits our need to get laid and to have companionship. Okay, so just directly address the caller. Would you, Amanda, would you tell her what to do so that I don't have to be a man telling her what to do? Yeah, I mean, I would never talk to this guy again, and I would also consider calling the police. Why did you go with I statements there instead of being prescriptive? If I were her, that's what I would do. <laughs> no, I want you to tell her what to do. You should do blank. You should never speak to that man again, and you should consider calling the police. Oh, my God. I just ordered you around. I just told you what to do, and now I feel like a tool of the patriarchy myself. No, no. I mean, you're right. You're right. So I, 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 There I am being very socialized like a woman. I can't even just use the uh, the commanding voice that's kind of what i thought when you did that when you shift when i said tell her what to do and you shifted into what you would do which is kind of a gentle like socialize as a woman way to suggest to someone what they might want to do without telling them what to do and i'm you know i i tell people what to do all the time i feel completely entitled to tell people what to do because they call my show and they ask me what they should do and i fucking tell them i want you to do the same from here on out this is all an intervention for you amanda this entire interaction (laughs) little boss here. <laughs> yeah, I read your stuff. I, I love your stuff. I follow you on Twitter. And I just feel that you're too, uh, you're too shy and you're too demure and deferring. <laughs> you were the first person to ever tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> because it's not true, which is why I love your stuff and why I read you and why I follow you on Twitter. Amanda Marcotte, politics writer at Salon. Thanks for jumping on the phone. Thank you. And thank you for ruining Beauty and the Beast for all of us. We appreciate it. <laughs> I, I can do Little Mermaid too if you ever want. <laughs> <laughs> Just please don't touch 
bed knobs and broomsticks. That has a place in my heart. Yeah, no, that one's probably okay. Hey, Dan, I am a 20-something gay guy living in New York City, and I have a question for you. I'm an actor. I wait tables in between gigs, so I'm on the broker side, probably, and I work at a gay bar as one of my um, survival jobs, and I had a guy contact me on through Instagram asking for me to sell him my sweaty socks. And after some hesitation and some weirdness, um, just messaging him through that, he Venmoed me some cash and I left them at a random Starbucks and he went and picked them up. So I never met him. I've asked him for a picture of himself and he gave it to me and he, I'm not sure if it's, I'm not even sure if it's him, the picture that he sent. Anyway, now he's asking me for some of my semen. And I want to because he's going to pay me a good amount of money for it. But I'm a little nervous. Like, what if he, what if this guy's like crazy and he like frames me for like a murder or something? I don't know. He also has commented that he's seen me at work at the gay bar. So he can see me, but I can't see him. So it kind of freaks me out, but maybe I should just like relax. I'm a pretty sex positive and non-judgmental person. And this is easy cash. Um, Yeah. Just let me know what you think of it. Let's game this out. You give him your semen, you sell him a vial of your semen or some semen stained, whatever it is he requested your semen to arrive in. And he frames you or attempts to frame you. For murder, your semen turns up on the body or face of some murdered person two states over. And the cops come to arrest you because your DNA is in the database, I guess, somehow. That would also have to be a thing. That would also have to happen for him to successfully frame you or have happened already for him to successfully frame you by planting your semen on someone. And the cops show up and you show them this exchange you had. You show them the text messages or the DMs you exchanged with this person on Instagram and you show them how cavalier and promiscuous you have been with sharing your semen with complete strangers. And I kind of think that probably will be enough of an alibi to get you off in the end if the cops show up at your door at all. I I think you're overthinking this. I think your worries are misplaced. I don't think that that's a real concern. That said, it is creepy that this person knows what you look like, that this person knows how to contact you, that this person knows where you work, and you know nothing about this person, and they sent you what is highly likely to be a fake picture. That's all unnerving. Now, perhaps this person is just embarrassed or ashamed about their thing for dirty socks and their thing for acquiring the semen of hot people on Instagram through kind of espionage-style drops in random Starbucks all over Manhattan. Who knows? But you have leverage here. He wants your semen. He wants to pay for it. And you want to know a little bit more about him so that you're comfortable selling him your semen or selling him future pairs of sweaty socks. So you say to him, look, I'd love to sell you more socks. I'd love to sell you more underwear. I work in a gay bar. A little bit about that is, you know, inviting people to lust over me and I'm fine with being lusted over, but I need to know who you are. I need legit contact information. I I would like to meet you in person and I will hand you my semen in a vial or in my underpants or however you want it. 
But for you to get my semen, you're going to have to give me more than whatever the pile of money is. You're going to have to give me some peace of mind, a little comfort. And my mind can only be set at ease if I know I'm sharing these things and I'm happy to share and delighted to be paid to share with a real person that I can trust. So let's meet, shake hands. You can hand me the money. I will hand you the semen. We're going to take a quick break from your calls because we have a guest in the studio today here to talk about an article that he wrote that appeared on Huffington Post Highline. That's Huffington Post home for long form journalism. If you're a gay man and you're on Twitter or social media or you're just awake and alive and on the internet occasionally, you probably had your attention drawn to this article. Someone probably sent you the link. If you follow me on Twitter, I sent you the link. The article is called Together Alone, the Epidemic of Gay Loneliness by Michael Hobbs, who's a contributing writer at Huffington Post Highline, who is with us in the studio. Hey. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good. So this article really landed with a, really made a boom. It made a splash. Mm. And can you tell my listeners what it's about and what inspired you to write it? So it's basically about the sense of loneliness and social isolation and kind of enduring sense of otherness that a lot of gay men carry with them into adulthood. Mm -hmm. I think that as a gay person, you sort of know that like kids growing up in Mississippi have it really bad and you know that there's kids that get really severely bullied. But I think what a lot of gay people don't know is that the same symptoms that those kids in Mississippi have, kids who grew up in San Francisco have the same symptoms and kids who grew up with accepting families have the same symptoms. And I profile somebody whose mom is a lesbian and grew up in a super accepting home who basically has symptoms of PTSD in his 30s. From the, his time in the closet before he came out. Yeah, basically from from being in the closet is almost as bad for you as actually being bullied. Mm -hmm. So the way that you adapt to not get bullied is just as bad for you as being bullied. And you unpack it in the article, people engage in all these forms of self-policing and, and essentially are tricked into bullying themselves so that their secret, while they're still keeping it a secret, isn't discovered. And this has a psychological impact that we carry with us into adulthood. You, you open the article by saying, the gay community remains stuck in the same place we've been for decades. Gay people are now, depending on the study, between two and ten times more likely than straight people to commit suicide, twice as likely to have a major depressive episode. And like the last epidemic we lived through, the trauma appears to be concentrated among men, all these unbearable statistics lead to the same conclusion. It is still dangerously alienating to go through life as a man attracted to other men. The good news, though, is that epidemiologists and social scientists are closer than ever to understanding all the reasons why. Mm. And the reasons why, again, are... It's basically this phenomenon called minority stress, mm -hmm. that even if you never experience overt trauma... The things that you do, the adaptations that you make to avoid experiencing trauma can be just as bad for you. So one of the psychologists I interviewed mentioned that one of his patients had a father who used to say, tone it down at the dinner table. Now, that's not the same as your dad saying, I will kick you out or you're a faggot or something horrible. But it's exactly the kind of little nibbling thing that you constantly measure yourself against. I want to act in a way that doesn't make my father tell me to tone it down. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try to act more masculine. I'm going to try to do things to impress him. And those little adaptations, without really realizing it, you carry those into your 20s and your 30s and your 40s in this invisible way. And you keep acting in that way basically your whole life without ever really noticing it. One of the things that you go into in the piece that really resonated for me was you, you talk to young people who came out and then moved into their first gay spaces and felt like they'd been chucked into a wood chipper uh, emotionally. I, I want to read another bit from the piece. A study published in 2015 found that rates of anxiety and depression were higher in men who had recently come out than in men who were still closeted. 
It's like you emerge from the closet expecting to be this butterfly and the gay community just slaps the idealism out of you, Adam says. When he first started coming out, he says, I went to West Hollywood because that's where I thought my people were. But it was really horrifying. It's made by gay adults and it's not welcoming for gay kids. You go from your mom's house to a gay club where a lot of people are on drugs and it's like, this is my community. It's like the fucking jungle. Close quote. <laughs> now, I've talked about this a lot and I've been saying to young queer kids for years that coming out is not the end of your problems. It's the beginning of new ones. And no, the people at the nightclub... Uh, are not your community. It's a fucking nightclub. People go there to get drunk and high and hook up and not just gay people. If young straight people went out into nightclubs at Mm. 18 or 21 going, Oh, this is my community. They would be, they would feel the same sense of alienation. I really feel like we set up a lot of young gay kids for this, for this heartbreak by filling them with false expectations of what the gay community is. Gay men are not your brothers. I have brothers, I have actual brothers, and my brothers have never broken my heart or given me a sexually transmitted infection, thank God, right? But we tell young gay kids that, oh, the gay community is your brother, and once you come out, everything's going to be awesome uh, once you're surrounded by gay people. And, and I've always said, and, and sometimes I've gotten in trouble with this with, with other gay activists, we don't tell 15-year-old straight girls that adult straight men are their brothers for lots of good reasons. Why are we telling, why are we giving people these expectations of what they're going to encounter when they come out that are so unrealistic and then so counterproductive because there's this disillusionment that sets in once they enter the sexual marketplace. Yeah, I mean, the word that I heard over and over again was re-traumatized. So kids, they move to Chicago. They're like, I'm finally done. I can stop being scared. I can finally be comfortable. I'm safe. Yeah. And then they go to neighbors and our place and then everyone is super shitty to them. And then all of a sudden, you know, they've been telling themselves that it's their gayness that has been making them different. And then all of a sudden, everyone's treating them differently because they're overweight or because they don't look the way that people think that they should or because they are they have a lower income or there's all these reasons that people find to discriminate against you once they're done discriminating against you for being gay. But they're not necessarily – we want to blame the gay community for these dynamics as if they're peculiar or specific to gay life or the gay community. And People who are straight get rejected because they don't make enough money. Straight men who are short have really a hard time finding partners because there's this bias a lot of women carry against uh, short men. Uh, You know, you quote somebody who says, all of a sudden it's not your gayness, it gets you rejected, that's you, it's your weight or your income or your race. The bullied kids of our youth, Paul says, grew up to become bullies themselves. And I read that just thinking, is everyone supposed to fuck you? Is that how we create community? Are you you not, no one's allowed to reject you? If somebody Mm. doesn't want to sleep with you because, you know, and I think people can be terribly shitty and sometimes people uh, aren't sleeping with the people that they're attracted to, they're sleeping with the people that they've been told they ought to be attracted to and we all need to interrogate our desires to make sure they're actually ours But if someone doesn't want to sleep with you because of X, Y, or Z, that's not them attacking you. They're not bullying you. If they're awful to you about expressing their disinterest, okay, then they're being assholes. But if the standard for the health of our community is everybody has to fuck everybody and no one's allowed to say no to anybody, how is that not a community that's just a Hieronymus Bosch painting with dildos and lube? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't think you like need to date somebody that you're not attracted to out of like trying to be a better social justice warrior. But I hear I that a lot. I hear, you know, when people talk about young gay people or even middle-aged gay people, I hear it from some of my peers now mm-hmm. that they go out and, you know, guys don't want to sleep with me because I'm old. It's like, well, would you have wanted to sleep with you right. when you were 22? Right. Probably not. Yeah. And this, 
metric that the health of the gay community is measured by how easy it is to get a dick in your mouth mm. seems crazy to me. Yeah, I think I think the the structural factor there is the extent to which I guess dating ish spaces have taken to colonizing the gay community. In that, if you are a gay person, you've just come out, you're 19, you've just moved to a big city, you want to meet other gay people, you want to form that gay community. Where do you go? I mean, it's not always clear where you go. I agree that a nightclub is not a great place to make friends, and Grinder is not a great place to make friends. But I think for a lot of these kids, they don't necessarily see another place to go. There aren't really other options. Another place to go to make exclusively gay friends, to find... Or just to make friends in general. I mean, it's hard when you move to a big city regardless. But I think that there are specific dimensions to this that gay people want to... I mean, they do want to date each other, but they also want to find places where they feel comfortable. They want to find gay people that have been through a similar experience. Mm -hmm. And if you're 19 right now and you just moved to a big city, how do you meet gay people? What are actually your options? And it is basically grinder or a bar. There aren't really other options. There's a couple like little NGO projects and stuff like that, but they're few and far between. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think I don't think that we all have to like date each other for social justice reasons. But I do think that the ways that gay men reject each other are particularly harmful. And there just isn't really an option of doing something else if you're a gay man. If you want to find love, if you want to find friends, you sort of do have to use. I don't agree. What, what do you tell 19-year-old kids to do? Leave the fucking house. Volunteer. Go do something. Yeah, that's what I tell kids too. I always say like sports leagues and like – And not necessarily gay ones. Yeah. Like the benefit of living in a place like Seattle if you get to a, one of the big blue dots, if you get to a, a progressive urban area, right. is that you can be gay. I mean one of the reasons we've seen so many like quote-unquote gay community institutions, gay bowling leagues is always the example I go yeah. to, fall apart and go away uh, is not because gay people are less interested in bowling. It's because you can right. bowl on a straight league now, right. quote unquote, a straight league. Now there's more uh, integration or, you know, to use the $30 terror word on college campuses, assimilation. Mm. You know, we created a lot of parallel institutions in the gay community because yeah. we were not allowed to be gay and on a bowling league. So we made our own bowling league, our own newspapers, our own bars, or even our own restaurants. I'm old enough to remember a time when if you wanted to go on a gay date, you couldn't be on, you know, the two of you couldn't have a romantic date in a regular restaurant. So there were like, in every big gay urban area, a couple, a handful of like gay restaurants you could go to on a date without being stared at or asked to leave. But we created these parallel institutions and networks because you couldn't be openly gay. In the so, so, you know, if you want to find people who share your interests beyond your interest in dick, you don't have to. Yeah just volunteer or just play on the gay sports leagues. You can play now in many places on the regular ones. You know, the reading the piece and one of the things I wrote you right after the piece came out, a lot of the guys you interviewed, a lot of the guys you profiled seem to be at once embedded in the gay community, seeking friends and lovers uh, exclusively within the gay community and traumatized by the experiences they were having in the gay community. And what occurred to me was what would the mental health profile look like for straight women if straight women expected uh, and, you know, they were expected to and expected themselves to draw all of their emotional support, all their friendship networks uh, from a pool of exclusively heterosexual men. I think straight women would be crazy. I think that would make you nuts. That if everyone that you were a friend with was somebody that you could potentially be with or might want to be with you, that would create a much cagier uh, existence and one shot through with, I call it preemptive rejection. I think that's a lot of what happens in bars. You know, somebody wants to just say something to you and be friendly and you're thinking, well, they probably want to get with me. And if I welcome this contact, then they're going to have, 
can increase their sort of expectations that maybe they get with me. And so you will preemptively reject someone to, to avoid that situation or the reaction I'm going to come later. But what do you think straight women would be like? like? Like I read the article thinking these guys need straight friends. These guys need to not just be in gay clubs right. all the time bitching about how awful everyone right. is. First of all, I think that section of the article is not necessarily making the claim that gay men are super shitty to each other, though gay men are super shitty to each other. What I th- You ever heard a straight woman talk about straight men as a group? Oh, I know. Like Straight men are bastards if you ask straight yeah. women. You ask straight men about straight women and straight women are right. crazy bitches. You ask lesbians about other lesbians and lesbians yeah. are crazy. Like everyone is at once, you know, drawn to and right. hurt by and then angry with the group that they are attracted to. You have to make right. yourself vulnerable to people in that group. And then you're wounded by people in that group. And there's a certain amount of like, yeah, I mean, I think d- online dating basically sucks for everybody. And like the structural elements of that, that like 99 out of a hundred people you have to reject, whether you do that in a nice way, you're just going to experience more rejection than like our grandparents did at our age. I think that that's fine. What I think that we're seeing with the gay community is that people are compulsively going to these apps. I don't think that it's good that they're doing it, but I think the extent to which these apps are contributing to depression, anxiety, substance abuse, suicide, and very risky sexual behavior is a problem that we don't talk about that much. I don't want to get into this like Luddite thing of like, oh, it was all better 30 years ago. And like, oh, let's all just bring back the bathhouses. That's not the case. And I, I don't think that this is something unique completely to gay men. But I think there are structural factors that are making gay men compulsively do these things, mm-hmm. partly because we grow up in the closet and we obsessively seek validation and we're really afraid of rejection. And then when we go into the gay community, it's difficult for us to find people without using apps that kind of amp that up. So you see one of the stress researchers that I talked to, he said that a lot of people cope with stress by going on the app. So you see your your boyfriend on Facebook and or your ex-boyfriend on Facebook and he's just posted a photo with his new boyfriend and you immediately go on the app and you immediately find somebody on Grindr today. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that this is a good thing and it's it's very obvious that people shouldn't be doing this, but they are doing this. And this is a phenomenon within our community that I think we need to take seriously. At what point do we to throw out a Republican buzz phrase, at what point do we invoke personal <laughs> responsibility? Because part of what I took away from the article was uh, gay people are awful and cruel to each other. All of my friends are gay. And the apps make me feel terrible and I'm on mm-hmm. the apps all the time. At what point do we say, maybe it's not gay that's the problem. Maybe it's the way you're being gay that's the problem. Maybe it's what you're doing and how you're folding the gay into your life. The apps make you miserable. Get the fuck off the yeah. apps and don't act like you have no other options. Right. Leave the goddamn house. Right. You have options. But we, you know, and if... You know, you you belong to a cruel and vicious clique of gay men who are constantly sticking knives in each other, sort of boys in the band style. Make different fucking friends. Right. I don't think. I mean, maybe I've, some of your friends should be straight people who who you aren't competing for and competing with. I think that you're absolutely correct as far as the advice to those kids. I would say that. Every minority experiences minority stress in different ways, and minority stress expresses itself in ways that are pro-social and Mm anti-social. And the unique form of stress that gay men get growing up tends to manifest itself in these ways where one of the researchers told me it gives you this huge need for connection, but it removes all of the tools you have to form it. So one of the experiences of being in the what, – what growing up in the closet does to you is it gives you this bottomless need for validation, but it also makes you really bad at getting it in a way that's pro-social. And so you keep acting out those same patterns as you get into the gay community. But it doesn't make everybody bad at it. Reading the piece, one of the things that, that occurred to me and, and was 
is there any research out there into guys who are content, guys who mm. aren't abusing drugs, guys who aren't doing chemsex, guys who aren't fucking miserable and angry and self-lacerating and surrounded mm. by shitty people? And at some point you have to ask yourself, what are those guys doing right? What are the guys who aren't attempting suicide, abusing uh, chemicals, abusing themselves with sex, abusing their friends or surrounding themselves by friends who are abusive? What are they doing differently? Are there any studies that look into that? Not just you know, putting the guys who are miserable under the microscope, but looking at the gay men who aren't miserable and putting them under the microscope and seeing what their strategies are. Cause we all go through the closet. We all carry that into adulthood, but not everybody yeah. is destroyed by it. So what are the guys who aren't destroyed by it doing differently? I mean, this is not a particularly shocking answer, but it's essentially social support. It's essentially, it's not necessarily that you have a lot of friends because a lot of gay men have a lot of friends, but those friendships are not particularly close and those friendships are not particularly intimate. And so what you find among gay men that really have this resilience is they're able to form emotional connections with other men. This is not like a huge headline finding that Mm -hmm. when you have more friends, you're happier. But a lot of gay men have this weird sort of short circuit where they're not able to turn all of these acquaintanceships into actual friendships. And a lot of that is based on the training that they got or they gave themselves when they were in the closet. But it's basically... when you're in the closet, if you let somebody really see you, if you get close to someone, they might discover your secret. Exactly. And so I, I still feel that way. I carry that around me now, like letting someone get close yeah. feels in this residual way, this vestigial way, dangerous, even though yeah. I'm not hiding anything anymore. Yeah. But again, like I, I just come back to like reading the piece and I really think it's a terrific piece and I think gay men everywhere should read the piece and there's a lot of interesting conversations going on online right now about the piece at some point uh you know i i for a living half the time just people call me or write me and it's my job to grab them and shake them yeah and reading the piece i just wanted to grab like every other guy you talk to and just shake him and say okay you know high school was shitty not just for us it was particularly shitty i think for us but not just for us yeah shitty for everybody everybody suffers yeah like snap the fuck out of it stop complaining get into therapy yeah if what you're doing makes you miserable, do it differently. Yeah. And we need a campaign, an education campaign in gay land that undoes the bullshit that's pushed out by, I don't know, the, the rainbow windsock industry about what gay life is like. Because people right. come in with really radically unrealistic expectations that then they're jarred. You know, the first, you know, all the straight people are awful. All the straight people mean to me. The first time a gay person comes along who's awful to them, they're like, wait, that's not how it's supposed to work. Yeah. We're all supposed to be brothers. It's like, no, that's right. not all Jews like each other. Not all straight people are good to each other. I don't know. Like, obviously the piece filled me with feelings and emotions as I rant. I'm interviewing you and I'm barely letting you get a word in. <laughs> no, I think, I mean, one thing that you find when you talk to gay guys that have recently come out is this kind of like this bursting of the fairy tale narrative. Disillusionment. Yeah, that they're all thinking that they're going to meet this Disney prince. And part of that is because the depictions in Hollywood that we've all seen have been this kind of like this fabulous gay life. And you're going to these white circuit party, whatever Miami bullshit parties all the time. And every everybody's attractive. Everybody's having sex. Everybody's super happy. And of course, that's unrealistic. And they grow up and they go, well, shit, this is not going to happen for me. But you're right that people just need to have realistic expectations. I mean, one of the most like dire. Straight life ain't friends. Yeah, exactly. And straight life ain't the bachelor. But we don't seem to need to tell straight people that. Well, one thing that I think like the statistic that I think more gay people need to know is that like if you do a sample of gay people over 35, 30% of gay men are in relationships, 60% of lesbians are in relationships, and 82% of straight men are in relationships. So the fact is you have pretty lousy chances of actually being in a relationship. Gay men over the age 35. Yes. Okay. We have to 
just asterisks and mentioned the AIDS epidemic there and the decimation uh, of yes, and this will change with generations and the trauma that inflicted and the people who wound up marooned and isolated because their social network was destroyed. Of course, yeah. And there, you know, some people who are fifty are single or sixty are single because the love of their life died twenty five years ago. Yes. There's, I mean, there's still huge ripples from the AIDS epidemic, but you also find this among younger people too, among 25 to 35 year old gay guys that basically the chances of being in a relationship, you take any random sample at almost any age and gay men are about twice as likely as straight men to be single. And we're also weirdly four times more likely to kill ourselves over a breakup than straight men. So basically it seems like there's this acknowledgement or there needs to be this acknowledgement that like the fairy tale fantasy thing is not going to happen for everybody. And if you're I that all the time, exactly. You're always talking about this. I, you, the idea that you're going to like come out and meet a man and get a dog and like move to Redmond is not necessarily going to happen. And it's you. not necessarily what everybody wants. Exactly. And that's either. not necessarily, so, that's not what you should be striving for. But the difference or the kind of the weird transitional period that we're in now is that there's this piling up of expectations of kind of straight people, Disney prints expectations on gay people for a long time. And I think a lot of gay people now are coming of age and realizing that that's not going to happen for them. And that's where the loneliness comes in because it's the gap between the expectations and the reality. Whereas if we had, hopefully now, a much more honest conversation about what you can actually expect as an adult gay man, that it's not all going to be sex and a and, boyfriend and a dog and, and all what this you stuff. Can, and you might not get the Disney prince. Settling yeah. down requires some settling for. Yeah. And if you want to be in a long-term committed relationship, eventually you're going to have to settle. And yeah. the person you settle for is probably settling for you. And abs in a Disney Prince profile might not be in the picture. And that's what I think people kind of need to acknowledge is when they're coming out that it's going to be a process. It's going to take a while. Everyone around you is hurting in a lot of the same ways that you're hurting. And those manifest themselves in ways that are not super charming. Mm -hmm. And there's different models of this kind of like moving to the suburbs and being two people and getting a dog and all this kind of stuff. That's not going to work for everybody. And the person that you're dating, that's not. doesn't work for straight not... people anymore. Exactly. Millions of more people are choosing to be single. Eric Kleinenberg has been on the show, has uh, written an entire book about uh, how the largest single growing demographic is people who are choosing to be single and are not unhappy about it. I just don't want to pathologize uh, people who aren't coupled or throupled or whatever uh, by suggesting that they're all miserable out there and Completely, yeah. and on the apps and shooting meth because they couldn't yeah. land a boyfriend. Not everybody wants a boyfriend or needs a boyfriend yeah. uh, to feel content or a, or a husband to feel content. Um, you know, I, I've talked about this a bit uh, and I always mention it when I give a speech and when I talk to young gay people about uh, adjusting their expectations that when you come out, not the end of all your problems, the beginning of new ones and sometimes ones that are more shattering – you know, the, the bullies made you feel bad and, and, and the homophobia that your family tossed around. But really, you haven't been devastated like you will be the first time your heart is broken by somebody that you were in love with and invested in emotionally. And But the other thing I often say to them is just gay people aren't necessarily good. And gay people, because of the shit that we suffer, might be a little worse at slightly greater rates. Mm. makes me unpopular with some gay people mm. to point that out. We can, on the one hand, claim... We smoke more abused drugs, which is not the same thing as drug use, drug abuse, uh, and, and commit suicide and at higher rates because of all this garbage that we've suffered. And yet we're going to be as healthy and functional within a relationship as an average, the average person might be. That's not true. Like we have damage and we have to watch out for it. That was really driven home for me when I was a young person 
And Jeffrey Dahmer, the cannibal, the gay cannibal in Milwaukee in the early 90s, ate a friend of mine. I had a friend who disappeared. And that for me was the moment I went, gay men aren't my brothers. Gay people that I meet don't deserve any benefit of the doubt. You know, if you sit a random person down to me, next to me, and say, you have something in common, that's not, you know, you both like clams. It's not enough to then infer that I can make myself vulnerable to this person in every way because they can be trusted because we both like clams any more than we both like dicks. Well, this is, I mean, this to me seems to characterize the transition period that we're in, in that it, there was a time when there was so much oppression that being gay was more of a bonding factor that you've experienced the same kinds of oppression. You're all closeted at work. You're all going through the same thing. As we transition into a world where gayness is basically like left-handedness, where like, I feel no, bond with other left-handed people whatsoever we're in this transition period between those two things mm-hmm. where part of us is being told hey you do have this bond with other gay people and our lived experience is that like well it's kind of like being left-handed there's nothing really there we have different jobs you have different interests there's nothing necessarily that says that we have to get along just because the two of us are gay but i think this process of going from one type of minority to another type of minority is going to take 60, 100 years or something, and we're going to be in this transition period in between where different people are going to have different expectations about that. One of the things that I'm really always jealous of my – there are very few things that I'm jealous of my straight friends for is that they got a lot of practice in dating mm-hmm. when they were in high school. They broke up with girls. They had to see them the next day. They, they had crushes was, on people. And it was supervised. And it was all supervised, and it's, it's done in this way where kind of everybody knows – like you're dealing with various emotional roller coaster spikes. And like my first date, I was 19. My first breakup, I was like 22 – all my friends went through this when they were 15 or 16. Right. And so when you're gay and in your 20s, it's basically a bunch of insanely emotionally immature people as well that just don't know how to do this shit. I, I, I think that's really smart and, and really true. And when you're going through it, when you're dating, when you're 15 years old, uh, you're surrounded by people who help you put that in perspective. Your friends have had their first breakup. Your parents are there. Your siblings are there to say – it's not that bad and we've all been there. When you have that first breakup at 22, you're not going to confide in your parents. You're probably yeah. not in touch with your siblings as much as you used to be when you were still living under the same roof. And you're on your own and you feel isolated and lonely like you talk about in the piece. So, Michael, to wrap this up somehow, shitty things are done to gay people. Some gay people then are shitty people in adulthood, just like some of everybody are shitty. Uh And I really think the trick to being a happy, centered, relatively content gay adult is to not be shitty and not to surround yourself with shitty people. And it seems to me when I hear someone complain that all the gay people in their life and all the gay people that they encounter are shitty, what they're telling me is that they themselves are shitty, that they're one of those shitty people. Like if everybody in your friend circle is shitty – what are you doing there if you're not all so shitty? Like work on your own shit, make new friends, get the fuck out of there. It's like how the cast members on The Real Housewives are always saying, I'm just tired of the drama. <laughs> it's like if you're complaining about drama that much, there's clearly something that you're contributing to. Because there's an oh poor you quality to, to, to the yeah. piece. You know, you're very empathetic. 
Uh, it's not your job to grab people by the shoulders and shake them. It's mine. <laughs> and reading the piece, I was starting to feel like just tell them to fucking get the fuck out. Tell them to do gay differently because right. they're blaming gay for how right. unhappy they are when it's actually how they're doing gay that's making them unhappy. Well, I don't think that the takeaway of the piece is that like gay men are shitty to each other because as you said, like left-handed people are shitty to each other and like every demographic group is in some way or another shitty or non-shitty to each other. Mm-hmm. I think the real takeaway of the piece is that Stigma affects us in invisible yet profound ways. And I think a lot of us, I had no idea. I never thought about my high school experience before I started writing this story. I never thought that like, huh, telling lies every single day in high school and making up girlfriends and keeping track of who might know and who doesn't know, huh, maybe that affects me as a 34-year-old man. I never thought that. I thought, well, I wasn't really bullied. Nobody ever called me a faggot. So I must be fine. I'll call you a faggot right now if you missed out. Okay, that's one. Quota. I've hit the quota for the day. (laughs) I mean, I think that this is the thing that we all need to acknowledge. And I think this gives us a little bit of empathy and can maybe make us slightly nicer to each other on Grindr is that a lot of us do carry around this damage in ways that we don't see. And that I think the fact that we have like these light PTSD symptoms, a lot of us, Mm -hmm. is something that hopefully will give us like a little bit of empathy for each other and like yeah maybe you had a really shitty time in the closet we all did all right michael hobbs we're gonna leave it there check out his piece together alone the epidemic of gay loneliness at highline huffington post thank you for coming in thanks hi dan i have a woman that i am madly in love with kind of a very lucky guy uh we got married a year ago on christmas eve during the first year of our relationship she was on some medication for anxiety which she can't take anymore and now, when we kiss, it sometimes, in fact, very often, triggers her anxiety and sort of a claustrophobic reaction from my face being too close to hers. We have plenty of sex. We have an open relationship. I want this relationship to last forever. I'm not going to break up with her, and we are in counseling. I'm having a very hard time. I miss kissing, and when I try to initiate it, particularly sustained kissing, French kissing, necking, open mouth kissing, and that kind of thing, it will often start a fight. It doesn't always trigger her anxiety, but just in case it does, she's cutting the kissing short. And these fights are very wearing. I've already placed ads uh, on Craigslist today for kissing only uh, and proceeding to more only if all parties want to. I am on Tinder and several other dating apps looking for alternatives. But this is complicated by the fact that my partner doesn't like to hear about me kissing other women, though she does really enjoy hearing about me having sex with other women and that enhances our sex life and intimacy. So Dan, How do I deal with the lack of kissing and making out in my life and keep this relationship with the woman I want to love with and be with forever? If there was this thing that every time I did it, it started a conflict in my relationship, started a fight, made my partner feel terrible, and then 
derailed whatever else it was we were doing in that moment, making dinner, seeing a movie, fucking, I would stop doing that thing. And if my partner didn't really have a problem with me doing that thing that annoys them and derails everything for us with other people, so long as they don't have to hear about it, I wouldn't tell my partner about it. I would just go fucking do it and keep my goddamn mouth shut. Dude, price of admission, you are married to this woman. It has been a year. She was on meds that made kissing a thing she could do. She's off those meds. And now kissing is a thing that she can't do. Or necking, open mouth kissing, that sort of shit. So you're just not going to be able to do it. What you do is you tell her that it's in her hands. Give her the power. That open mouth kissing, probably off the menu, but if she ever feels it in the moment, you miss it and you would like to do that with her. And so if she initiates, it can go on for as long as she likes. And the minute it stops, it stops. And there will be no complaints and bitching from you about how short the duration of the open mouth necking kissing was. That when it comes, you will be grateful. You will go with it. You will let her be in charge. And then you will shut the fuck up as sex moves on to other shit that you enjoy. You are making this a problem. You are building an engine that generates conflict at the heart of your relationship because you haven't grieved this, mourned it, buried this body, and moved the fuck on. Your wife can't do this. Your wife is triggered or traumatized or made unhappy or made unpleasant or whatever it is by this. And your question to me is, how do I do this? The answer is, you don't fucking do this. And you do it, you're in an open relationship. This thing that you miss, you can go do with others. As you know, you've already posted ads. And yet you still want to drill down on the wife somehow. You still want to bring that back to her and make her feel, I don't know, bad. You still want to have these fights. You still want to have this conflict that you don't have to have. Give her the power to initiate the kind of kissing you miss when and where she feels comfortable doing it. Give her the power to end it without complaint from you. And you have the power to do this with others. So do it with others, but then keep your goddamn mouth shut about it. Your wife doesn't need to hear about it, doesn't want to hear about it. And I don't understand why you feel compelled to tell her about it. So dude, your wife has a limitation. Your wife has a boundary you are the one creating the problem in your marriage by continuing to press at that and push at that and sandpaper that nerve. Knock it the fuck off. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm calling because I actually had a comment for somebody in the most recent episode. Um, the girl who was going to get pregnant from the known donor. Um, I recently got some advice from one of my best friends that whenever you have somebody ask you a question that you're uncomfortable answering, the perfect response is to just say, why do you ask? It kind of lets you out of the question and makes them uncomfortable instead. And when they give you some bullshit reason or maybe come up with some reason as to why they asked you a very personal question, you could say, hmm, interesting and just walk away. Hi, Dan. This is a response to the woman in episode 541 who's planning to have a baby with her friend as a sperm donor. In the call, she mentioned not being sure when she would tell her future child the truth about their conception, and I just wanted to say that she should tell them as soon as they ask. My mom had me through an anonymous donor, and she never made it a secret. When you grow up knowing something, it just becomes normal and simply never becomes a big deal. Even if they're too young to really understand the logistics of it all, just keep telling the truth anytime they ask, and as they get older, they'll figure it out. 
But if you seem like you're not answering their questions when they're young, it might lead them, them to think something's weird or wrong, when in fact, you just made an awesome decision. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in regards to episode 541 about the cat. You have a lot of really good points. Yeah, this guy should be washing his face and hands. Duh. Uh, kitty litter on the bed. That's weird, you know, obviously. But the fact of the matter is you cannot keep cats out of your bed. I'm sitting here. I have two cats. I just know it's impossible to keep cats out of your bed. Once they're on your bed, if that's where they want to be, you try to remove them, they're going to hop right back on there. There's nothing you can do about it. Cats are stubborn little creatures. The thing is, you can close the door, but they're just going to make noise all night long. They're just going to make really, really sad noises, really annoying noises, and you're not going to get any sleep, and you're not going to be able to fuck because it's really, really distracting. And even if they're not making noises, their little claws and little paws are going to be underneath the door making scratchy noises. So there's just nothing you can do. Cats are stubborn. They're not going to get off the bed. And we're going to leave it. Actually, not quite there. We're going to leave it. I bet your wife's a skank. There with my skanky wife. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a comment or question for a future show, please give us a call. 206-302-2064. We have a live taping of the Savage Lovecast coming up in Portland, Oregon. We're returning to Revolution Hall on April 14th. Join me and Nancy and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Jesus Christ for a very special sexy Easter extravaganza. Get all your sex and relationship questions answered live with special musical guests, Rachel Lark and the Damaged Goods. Like I said, Sexy Jesus will be there. Treats, bunnies, chocolates, baskets, live crucifixions on stage, and more. Go to portlandmercury.com slash Easter for tickets. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Amanda Marcotte on Twitter at Amanda Marcotte. And follow Michael Hobbs on Twitter at Rotten in Denmark. Be sure to read my sex advice column, Savage Love, every week in Leo Weekly in Louisville, Kentucky, and other newspapers all across the country. The Savage Love cast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Rescue and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Love cast. Thanks for downloading.